Welcome to the Flaps Podcast. Hello, I'm Elliot. And I'm Mark. Once again, apologies for our lateness this month, but we've been busy keeping you out of trouble with the Olympic airspace restrictions. I mean, ultimately, we have to protect the airspace over the uh, over London during the Games. Uh, and if necessary, if it really does come to that uh, really outside possibility, we, we are employed for uh, lethal force. And we've also been sorting out all the new European licensing changes. Well, it's going to be the majority of licenses, and it's going to be PPL holders, CPL, ATPLs. You can hear both of those special CAA podcasts in full at flapspodcast.com. Anyway, now we've sorted that loss out, we can get down to some serious flaps business. This month we talked to celebrity pilot Don McLean. Didn't he drive his Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry? No, not that Don McLean. Radio 2 presenter, actor, comedian, and crackerjack. Crackerjack! 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 And crackerjack! Crackerjack! Shut up! And crackerjack legend Don McLean. Clean. The RAF man said, um, say again, Charlie, Charlie. <laughs> and she goes, this is Charlie, Charlie, requesting penetration. Uh, we also take a trip to Sywell to visit this year's Aero Expo. Pablo Mason talks about radio failures. Rather apologetically, we explained that it appeared we'd had a transient failure of the radio and various controllers on the international distress frequency explained that 20 or 30 minutes of total silence was not an excuse. And we'll catch up with a couple couple of chaps who spent the jubilee weekend legs tightly crossed unable to have a pee what just like poor prince philip <laughs> no uh, they were setting a flying record and you can find out some more soon he's an actor a comedian a broadcaster he's just been knighted by the pope and best of all he used to be on crackerjack no mark at that point you're supposed to shout crackerjack back like I did earlier on you know like on the Why? TV show because he used to do it on the kids TV show like, I'll do it again okay. uh, he used to be on crackerjack crackerjack I think you can manage a bit more enthusiasm than that can't you right he used to be on crackerjack crackerjack oh for heaven's sake what <sighs> right really go for it he used to be on crackerjack crackerjack so we're backstage with uh, with Don McLean Don uh, nice to meet you how long have you been a pilot for I actually uh, passed my GFT in 1984. I was on summer season in Clacton. And having uh, done all the rehearsals and everything, I thought I'd need something to do. And I've always been mad keen on aeroplanes. Went down to the local um, airfield, which if anybody knows it, is a a very short grass strip. And um, said, could I have a look at um, some biplanes that they got there? And the fella started talking to me. Have you ever thought of learning to fly and I said yes lots of times but I couldn't afford it and I've not got the time he said well we normally do what's called a residential course here he said and uh, we teach people to fly in about six weeks I thought this is interesting and he said and we uh, you know we put people up he said and uh, and we give them their 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 lunch and their dinner all as part of the I said this is fantastic but I didn't need putting up because I'd got so I got uh, a flat that I was living in but uh, I used to go down every morning have a lesson he, he I, they then gave me my dinner <laughs> and uh, and then we'd had a ground school and then I had another lesson in the afternoon and so within four weeks I was ready to take my general flying test which I did that's brilliant and surely an awful lot of cramming involved to learn all the uh, all the theory for the exams yeah um it was the airframes and engines that uh, that fooled me i was i was all right on on the highway code you know <laughs> and uh, and uh, the um uh, the navigation etc but uh, the airframes and engines that that was the one that i struggled on 
And do you um, do you do much flying these days? Because obviously you're a busy chap. You're here, there, and everywhere. Do you get much chance to fly? I mean, could you? you I suppose you could use it as a form of transport around the country. Well, I used to. Yeah, uh, for many years I did. But um, I had a Grumman Tiger AA5B with a 180 uh, engine, and it was lovely. It was very quick uh, for a touring aircraft. And I went all over the place. It was particularly useful when I was working up in Scotland or the Isle of Man or the Channel Islands or the Isle of Wight even. But um, it just got so expensive. I was working to keep an aeroplane and about five years ago I flogged it. No. And now I only I only fly under the auspices of kind people who know me who've got aeroplanes and ring me up occasionally and say, do you want to come flying? It is an expensive thing, isn't it? And it seems to be getting more and more expensive. I mean, do you worry that it will put people off learning? Oh well, I think it's already put people off learning. I think it's uh, it's uh, it's a rich man's uh, sport, which is a shame because it should be more more open to everyone. But I I spent I did spend a lot of money on it. You buy you buy a, a, an aeroplane like a, a Grumman Tiger with with a wobbly front wheel, and you can't really rent it out to people. I, the first aeroplane I ever had was uh, was a Tomahawk, and I, I based at Coventry. And this guy used to rent it out for me, and it was lovely. And the money was coming in, and I was sort of uh, uh, still costing me money to fly, but it was making things a lot easier. And then some idiot put it nose first into the runway at Coventry. I mean, the thing that annoyed me, he, he wasn't hurt at all. Now I know that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want anything serious to happen, but I thought, well, maybe a broken a leg, injury. you know. And I, I'd, I'd have felt better then, but he walked away from it and the, the aeroplane was just in bits all over the runway. A bit of whiplash, surely. <laughs> now, we, we spoke actually to a fellow Grumman owner uh, on the podcast last year, um, Alex James from the band Blur, who, who, like you, used to fly to get to places as a performer. It's a convenient way to do it. He once flew into cloud inadvertently and before he had his IMC and uh, had all sorts of, you can imagine the problems he got into doing that. Anything like that ever happened to you? I had a dreadful experience, actually. Uh, although I, I was IMC rated, a friend of mine who who f- was also a pilot said, uh, "Oh, I've, I've got a meeting up in um, Scotland." He said, "And I wonder if we could fly there." And I said, "What a good idea!" He said, "I'll, I'll pay for all the fuel and everything, landing fees. This is great, you know. Several hours flying, all for nothing." So we we got uh, we were going to Edinburgh, and we got all the the weather reports and everything, and we took our very very early in the morning and set off and we flew all the way up to Newcastle and it was absolutely beautiful and um, the forecast for for cloud base at Edinburgh was 2,000 feet and we, we got to St, uh, St Abbs Head and, and turned and um, and off we went towards towards Edinburgh and uh, all of a sudden the, there was cloud like from as, as far up as you could see right down to the ground and I was in it. And I start talking to Edinburgh and they won't accept me because they say their cloud base is 200 feet. What's your alternative? And I said to Glasgow, can't you go back to uh, Newcastle? And I said, no, I ain't got enough petrol. So they um, they said, well, stand by. And uh, they then said that Glasgow would accept me. And we were then on, on, um, on a radar approach and uh, we were all over the flipping place. It was very difficult. Uh, I was doing the flying, the, the other chap was doing the radio. And um, eventually we broke cloud over the centre of... Um, of Glasgow at about 700 feet in unbelievable amount of rain on an unbelievable grey day. And they said, let us know when you see the airfield. And we were about one nautical mile away when we actually saw it. The, the visibility was so bad. Uh, and, of course, the CAA got involved then and uh, wanted to know what I was doing flying. But 
but fortunately, of course, the uh, the weather forecast they they read the same weather forecast that I had read, and it did say two thousand feet cloud base. So it's it had all changed. But that's the trouble with being in this silly country of yes. ours. The weather is a bit ridiculous, isn't it? A little it? bit unpredictable. That sounds fairly hairy. We always ask this question of our celebrities because uh, obviously, you know, you do a job that's in the public eye. You go on stage, you stand up, you make people laugh, you go on TV. What's more nerve-wracking, that or your first solo? My first solo wasn't nerve-wracking at all. Was it not? It was fantastic. Really? Yeah. You weren't nervous at all? No, I don't think so. Oh, I, I was mean, terrified. <laughs> I... I in fact, I actually uh, uh, my call sign was um, was was Victor Charlie, and I said, and I called Victor Charlie downwind singing Amazing Grace, <laughs> <laughs> and they had a sort of a ritual when you'd done your first solo. You landed, and immediately all all they everybody came out and stood around the airplane and, and and gave you a clap, and then they took you off into the um, into the little cafe that they got there and gave you a great big bowl of strawberries and cream. It was a sort of a thing that they did. <laughs> Yeah, so it was quite nice, and uh, it all went well. And it was a, it was a good first solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was although there was another bloke learning at the same time as me, and he he soloed um, a couple of days after me, and he put Victor Charlie nose first into the runway. So. <laughs> That's, that's not a good uh, yeah. end. You want to get strawberries and cream after that? No. Would you? So then I had to fly Romeo Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that nice to have two aeroplanes that were actually people? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, we mentioned the fact that you were on TV. Obviously, we're going to have to say it. Cracker Jack. Cracker Jack. You're not getting a pencil. Um, oh yeah, I've always wanted one of those. I mean, uh, that was what was that? Seventies, wasn't it? You Seventy-two. Were you flying then? Oh no, you flew after. You learned after, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. Um, it was. Uh, it was a great old TV show. I mean, do, do people shout that when? Uh, when they see you at airfields, if you get recognised, you still Pe- get that? People of a certain age do, yes. Like you. Right, yeah, okay, thanks for that, Don. <laughs> Cheers. I think it's a testament, isn't it, of sort of how much that was loved, that show, that we're still talking about it all well, these years later. Television was very different then. Uh, we were talking the other day, people people uh, go raving mad if they get um, four million viewers for, for a show now, yeah. and uh, Crackerjack on a Friday night, used to get eight and a half million. And I then, of course, at the same, more or less at the same time, I compared the Black and White Minstrel Show on television and we did a Christmas special and it got 21 and a half million viewers. You just can't comprehend that in, in the present That's phenomenal, time. isn't it? It's like, mm. a, that's like a third of the country all watching you. Yeah. That well, would make you nervous. So has anything else ever happened uh, of, of interest, of merit, of note in the air, Dom? We we were we were flying. <laughs> this is a bit this is a bit uh, off color actually. But we we were talking to the RAF uh, somewhere or other, and this this woman with a beautiful voice came on. One of the voices that you know all the all the hair on the back of your neck uh, stands on end, and and she says, uh, "This is Charlie Charlie," and it was, a, and it was um, a military aircraft traffic zone. Charlie Charlie requesting penetration. <laughs> and, and there was this pause. Yes. And all of a sudden, the, the fella, obviously the, the RAF man, said, um, say again, Charlie, Charlie. <laughs> and she goes, this is Charlie, Charlie, requesting penetration. And he said, stand by. And you know that he's gone off to get all his mates. Yes. And they're all stood around the microphone for the last time. He says, uh, Charlie, Charlie, bashful message. Charlie, Charlie, requesting penetration. Oh, they, are very, they are very naughty and at times, aren't they? They are. It's all good fun, though. All good fun. Listen, it's been absolutely smashing to meet you. Thank you ever so much for talking to us. Uh, it's nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to anybody about flying. Well, it was absolutely. One of the great joys of my life, and I'm sorry that I don't do it so much anymore. Well, if uh, if ever we do see you on our travels, we'll be sure not to shout Cracker Jack. We'll just come over and buy you some strawberries 
and cream, how's that? Well, that's a good idea. But if I had a crackerjack pencil, which are very, very rare, and I could sell it for several thousand pounds, I'd probably go back to flying again. <laughs> By yourself, you should have kept a load. <laughs> Buy a new plane. Buy a Rockwell Commander, yeah. <laughs> Don McLean, it's lovely to meet you. Thanks ever so much for talking to us. Great. Flaps. In the air. Everywhere. Still to come, Pablo Mason talks about radio failures and our report from this year's Aero Expo. Mark, what did you do this Jubilee weekend? Well, Elliot, I put my Union Jack shorts on and ate soggy cucumber sandwiches at a street party. Why, what did you do? I tried to join in with the Jubilee flotilla on the Thames in my rubber ring, but apparently my ring isn't a fitting sight for Her Majesty. Yes. Mm. Anyway, two men who did spend it productively were Jonathan Mitchell and David Jones. They set a new record for flying around the entire coast of Great Britain and they did it in 13 hours and 32 minutes, which is very good. Which is about how long it takes for you to do your pre-flight checks, isn't it, Mark? Cheeky git. Uh, It's an amazing feat and they join us on the phone now. Congratulations, chaps. Thank you very much. Yes, well done. Uh, it was uh, no, that's, that's no mean feat, is it? What a way to spend your bank holiday weekend. You, will you do anything to get away from spending it with the other halves? Is that what it was? <laughs> I guess so, yes. You know, <laughs> we thought we would just run away for the few days, you know. We're not tempted to buzz the palace. Uh, yes, but uh, we decided that Her Majesty probably wouldn't appreciate the unwarranted guests. Well, it was a quite an impressive fly pass, but I think, you, you know, your, your 182 would have been even better just tucked in there behind, uh, you know, some of the other, the other planes. Yeah, it would been lovely. The problem though. with the glide-free uh, regulations. <laughs> you could have helped give those Olympic typhoon pilots some training. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, um, just tell us why. What, what, what was the thinking behind it? Why did you want to go around the whole country in a weekend? It started off, uh, really, as uh, this, uh, there's two men in a pub and um, make up grand plans and... Uh, this uh, one, as we began to think about it a bit more, started to look quite possible. So um, we uh, decided to give it a go, and um, we've been planning it for about uh, six months now. And uh, we knew the aircraft had a chance of beating the existing record. The current or the previous record was held by a faster aircraft. What was, what was the previous record, by the way? 14 hours and 22 minutes. Uh, for a slightly lighter aircraft in the, um, if you're familiar with the FAI uh, categories, C, Class C is the um, powered aircraft, and they divide it into weight categories. Uh, the fastest so far for all aircraft was, uh, was an RV-8 that, uh, that did it last August in 14 hours and 22 minutes. So as, so as with all things, it started out in the pub, actually m- much like the Flaps podcast. So congratulations, because <laughs> you, you've done something much more constructive than we have. So, so well, well done there. But, um, so, so, you know, obviously with all these things, you know, you talk about it lots and lots, but how did you actually make it happen? Well, uh, it, that's quite straightforward. We, we, we looked at what the current records were. Jonathan's done a lot of work and a huge amount of preparation dealing with the, 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 the Royal Aero Club Racing Councils and all their representatives to get the records set up. Uh, but when it actually comes to flying the aeroplane around the coast, that's actually quite straightforward. You've just got to sit in the thing for 14 hours and point it in the roughly in the right direction. But, <laughs> well, you've got uh, something to follow as well, haven't you? Yeah, it's the ultimate feature crawl, I suppose, isn't it, really, yeah, around the coast? It's a coastline. If you, we kept it in the right-hand window all the way around and we, we got back where we started. It's brilliant. It's, it's just like the Cook's <laughs> tour, I guess. Yeah. Well, how much planning was involved in doing this? Uh, we've, we've been planning it for about six months and it was, for me, it was it was probably the last two months was sort of half to full time, uh, which sounds quite over the top. But the, the problem we had is that the faster aircraft had got the record. So we had to go through a series of um, uh, plans to work out what the maximum cruising speed of the aircraft was. Uh, our cruising speed without the stops was just over 151.8 knots. And 
the question was, could a 182 keep going that long at that power, um, which was considerably higher than its normal cruise speed? We were about 26 inches of manifold pressure. We, we found, or David found, the sweet spot for the engine where it was giving us the best fuel consumption, better than book, um, and about uh, the speeds that uh, the Cessna reckoned it could possibly achieve. Now, you said you wanted to know that the aircraft could do it. Could you? Well, we, we did a lot of training, and again, some of this involved the pub of staying awake for 15 hours at a time. We found we could do it, yeah. And what you say you're in the pub, obviously bladder training, because there wasn't time for many P-stops, were there? Yeah, that was, that was the biggest worry we had, and Jonathan um, provided us with um, certain extra equipment on board that we could deal with that piece. Having said that, both of us managed to last, but it was the first thing we did after landing the aeroplane was, well, somebody sorts out and fills it, go and find a toilet. Well, we, we, I'm sure you're aware of uh, Man, Manuel Kairos, the guy who flew around the world. Yeah. Um, he, he showed us his aircraft, and he had a what, what he called it, you've heard of the pitot tube, he had the P-tube, which, ah, was, which, was, yeah. which was hanging out. So you didn't have one of those on, on your 182, no? It, we considered it, but we decided <laughs> that if we were desperate, there's a bottle we could use, but... Uh, <laughs> But our longest leg was just under five hours, and that we could we could hang on for. So, well, explain the, the the trip then. You started off at Harden, and then when was your first um, landing? The first first stop we did was at Wick, which is about uh, eleven hundred kilometres. Uh, so we took off at um, just after five o'clock, crossed the start line at five thirty-five, and we landed at Wick just about half past nine. And the, the plan then was we had arranged for support teams at Wick and at our second stop, Leon Solent. So while we were manoeuvring to land, uh, the fuel bowsers, um, tankers at uh, Wick were manoeuvring to meet us just at the end of the runway from Far North Aviation. And uh, they refueled the aircraft while we dashed out to, to attend to the call of nature. Uh, they, they, uh, they thrust two hot coffees into our hand and some chunky Kit Kats, and uh, we were off again. Uh, we were stationed in the ground there for just over nine minutes um, at Wick. And uh, similarly at Leon the Solent, we did even better. We were on the ground for seven minutes. And uh, some of our club members from the Derby Aero Club had got down there. And uh, again, the Bowser manoeuvred itself. The tankers were waiting for us. And uh, as soon as the engine stopped, the uh, the fuel was being uploaded. So that was okay. that was your second leg then, from Wick to Southampton. That's right. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, a, that's, a, hell, that is a, that's a hell of a, uh, a leg, isn't it? That's how far is that? Well, um, well, I don't know. I never actually measured the distance, but we were very fortunate. We thought it was going to be our longest leg, but actually, it was uh, we were fairly quick because we had a monster tailwind, and we were touching close to 180 knots nearly the entire way down the whole of the east coast, and that we really moved some distance, and that's brilliant. So we shot down the coast, round the corner and landed. And it seemed to take, well, not as long as perhaps it should have done. Well, this was all over the Jubilee weekend. And as you say, there was quite a lot of wind. We all saw the Queen on TV cowering under the awning because the well, weather, weather was so poor. How do you plan for the weather for that? We didn't, to be honest. We, <laughs> right. we, 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 um, we worked out we could probably get 48 hours would be a rough guess that the weather might be OK. 24 hours, you get a better guess, but when you wake up in the morning, we know what the Met Office is like in this country. We, had a, we, we knew that it was possible. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Sky Demon software. Yeah, oh, yeah yes. of course we are. We're friends of the podcast, they are. Oh, indeed. Uh, Tim's a wonderful he's guy. He's a good lad, isn't he, Tim? He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a genius. He's a, he's a boffin. He's very, yes, very special. Yeah. Um, what it does, as you're probably aware, it allows you to collect the winds aloft when you do a plan. Yeah. So what I've been doing since January was I, I was uh, running the Sky Demon um, flight plogs every day with the ambient wind conditions for clockwise and anti-clockwise. 
So I've got something like uh, uh, over 100 Sky Demon runs, and we were noting the times for each leg. And what we worked out was that on 76% of the weather occasions in the first six months of the year, we could go faster than the previous record owner, uh, and, and for the remainder that we weren't, be, weren't able to do it. And we knew the weather conditions um, which would allow us to get around. We also discovered to our surprise that a clockwise circumnavigation was advantageous 80% of the time, From again, during this period where we were measuring it. Um, obviously, in no wind, it's the same, but almost always it was clockwise. And that suited us quite well because we wanted to get the, uh, the difficult Scottish section out of the way fairly early on. You must have had a fair bit of help from air traffic around the UK. Oh, it was superb, you know, that um, only a couple of the stations would be pre-notified. The one we was going to be really concerned with was Aberdeen. We used some friends up in the Aberdeen area to notify them. Aberdeen is one of the busiest airports in the UK, and it's all low-level helicopter traffic, and we wanted to go through low-level in the times of peak movements. Uh, we pre-notified them, but the rest of them, they basically got the usual requesting basic service, and, oh, by the way, we're also trying to break a record. Can you help? <laughs> uh, um, Request Norris McWhorter. Absolutely first class. You know, the first thing in the morning, you know, Liverpool was fantastic about helping us note officially timings, and they've given us the response we require for, to confirm the timings we passed over Harden Airfield. But it was our third call at um, half past five in the morning that actually woke them up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and as we then pass around all the various different stations, uh, they're superb. So you've done it now. It's all, you, you know, wheels down, uh, mission accomplished. How did you get the proof to say you've done all this? The course itself, it's called, a, under the um, FAI rules, it's called a recognised course around Britain. Um, and that has to be 3,500 kilometres minimum. The second thing is they need independent verification. So we were carrying five sealed GPS units on board. They then demand corroborating evidence, so the air traffic controller's um, information to say where we were, the ATC have sent us a lot of the flight slips, um, and finally um, there were designated witnesses needed to be at the airports that we stopped, so Far North Avi Aviation, Andrew Bruce was the um, person at WIC, and then we had a number of designated observers at Lee, um, and they signed a bunch of forms, so you, you, you present that package for ratification. The other thing we tried for the first time was we, we attempted to uh, tweet as we went around the country. <laughs> uh, when we got close enough to ground stations, uh, we were able to send georeferenced tweets. And we have, our uh, Round Britain record uh, Twitter account has a number of followers. And there were apparently people clustered on the computer waiting for the next tweet as it came through. And we managed to get quite a lot of them off as we went round. did have some problems around Wales because there weren't enough stations to pick us up. And... Um, uh, at one point, they came through in the wrong order, and, and the team had thought that we'd turned around and gone back. You know. <laughs> oh, that'll confuse them at the Aero Club. They'll be, they'll be thinking you, they'll, they'll be, they'll cance they'll be cancelling your record, boys. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, so no, adding mileage because we decided to go do a bit more of it again. <laughs> we weren't but, quite sure. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and you've raised quite a lot of money for charity as well. Yes, we were looking uh, to try and raise as much as we could. The, the, there's a charity which I think a lot of aviation people are aware of. It's called Fly to Help, largely based at Kemble. And uh, what they do is to give air experience days to people who are basically not able to, to do it, so often young disabled children or families with traumas. I think what I, what I didn't realize was that um, if people are very ill, terminally ill or profoundly disabled, it's often not possible for them to even have a commercial flight. So the, these things are arranged. And the other thing, again, with uh, particularly young disabled people, they spend all their time looking up 
and the chance to actually look down, uh, they, they regard as very special. So this charity, uh, which was set up by the uh, Rolls-Royce chief test pilot a few years ago, is, is gathering momentum. And uh, we set out to raise £2,000 for them, and I, I, we just passed 3000 at the oh, moment, brilliant. and uh, there, there are more donations coming in, so we're, brilliant. we're thrilled with that. Can people still donate? Have you got a, yes, like a, a Just uh, Giving page? Go to uh, www.justgiving.com slash record. Um, you can uh, you can cheaply donate, and um, the uh, the Just Giving website is actually pretty good because it will collect the gift aid on behalf of taxpayers, which makes the um, uh, the donations even more powerful. But you can also go straight to the Fly to Help website. It's Fly Two, as in the number two, FlyToHelp.org, and you can donate direct from there as well. You know, we 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 don't want the accolades of doing this. It's just you know, please give us the money. Now, as you said, this started out in the pub. Uh, after this chat, uh, myself and Mark will be going to the pub for a production meeting, which, which we always do. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be inspired. And I would imagine after probably three pints, we'll be convinced we can beat your record. So w- when, we, when we do, which is just a matter of time, lads, uh, will you then go and break the next world record? So if, if we'll it isn't us, if it's someone else, do you think you will break the record again if, it's, if it goes? I, I don't know about myself, Jonathan. That's your decision. It's your aeroplane. But the point is... These records are there to be broken. Yeah. Go out and fly. They're in it. They're, they're, they're the reason to go flying. Where else would you go flying for 14 hours in a day? Yeah, I know why people just go and do a few circuits and bumps or bum around in the local area for half an hour, but go somewhere. Record breaking gives you a purpose. Yeah. Boys, congratulations once again. Congratulations on the record and con- congratulations on having a very impressive logbook, I'd imagine, after all this. <laughs> lot. Uh, well, it's only, it only says, you know, Derby to Wick and then Wick to Yeah, that's very Bowie, true, actually. You know, yeah, that is very true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but listen, it's, it's a cracking thing. And as you said, hopefully it'll inspire people to have a go. And, uh, and also, just give us the website again if people want to donate some money. Yeah, it's www.justgiving.com slash record. Fantastic. Thanks for talking to us on the Flaps podcast. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. It's Mason's Minute. Someone asked me recently, Pablo, what happens when a radio fails? Well, the honest answer is it all goes quiet. And I will say, I think the most embarrassing answer is that once in an airliner, the main radio actually failed, and this sort of thing doesn't happen. And I and my co-pilot were on a night flight back from the Canary Islands to the United Kingdom. And somewhere over northern Spain, it all went quiet, or quieter than it would have been. At one or two in the morning, you don't get too much GA traffic, you don't get too much commercial traffic, and the radio tends to be quiet. But in this particular case, it was um, horribly so. And as we approached the south coast of the United Kingdom, my co-pilot and I looked across at each other and realised that we'd travelled from the south of France to the north of France without talking to a single soul, which was likely to be embarrassing when we had to explain what had happened. The recovery from radio failure was really rather straightforward. We switched it off and switched it back on again. Things burst into life and everyone and his mate was trying to call us up, worried that we had vanished from the surface of the earth. Rather apologetically, we explained that it appeared we'd had a transient failure of the radio and rather annoyingly, the various controllers on the international distress frequency explained that 20 or 30 minutes of total silence was not an excuse. Um, And they're absolutely right. It was an embarrassment. It was an embarrassment towards the end of my flying career and one that could have been equally so at the beginning of my flying career. 
So what do you do in the event of radio failure? First of all, recognise it. Be aware that your radio has failed, that uh, you can't hear anything going on. And ask a direct question to a direct controller who should be able to hear you. And if you get no reply, then you've established that your radio has no longer any reception. In terms of transmission, you don't know. Uh, you may get a side tone, you may not get a side tone. But keep transmitting your intentions. Um, it is now my intention to land. Unless I get uh, a red light from the control tower, I will continue and land. So make transmissions of what you're going to do. And if you can, try and guide your controller or your advisor to give some information as to whether things are clear for you to go. Keep the lookout that you always do and keep the listen out that you always do. And of course, one of the things I alluded to in my very embarrassing commercial episode is um, switch the radio off, switch it back on again. Have a look at the uh, circuit breakers. Have a look at your connections and plugs. Chances are, 99 times out of 100, it's finger trouble. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. Still to come, our report from Aero Expo 2012, including Tim Orchard of Technum UK, avoiding infringements with Irv Lee and more. At GoDaddy.com, we believe you can do amazing things on the internet. Start with a domain name, then build yourself a website or have GoDaddy build one for you. From hosting and online shopping carts to SSL certificates, GoDaddy has the tools you need at prices to fit any budget. Get your .com for $5.49 when you use the code FLAPS1 at checkout. GoDaddy.com. Domains, websites and everything in between. FLAPS Podcast. It seems every time Flaps Podcast visits Cywell, the sun always shines, and this year's visit to the Aero Expo was no exception. It was at the end of May, and if it had something to do with flying, it was on show at the Northampton Airfield. What about the boat they had there? How do you explain that? Mm, that's a good point. Um, so flying and floating. As my dad always said to me, don't get involved with something if it flies, if it floats... Or if it f Yes, yes, we all know that expression. Thank you for reminding us. Uh, anyway, we began by meeting the show's organiser, Alex Ayling. Hi there, nice to meet you. Um, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. And, uh, and what, what a brilliant day it is at the start of the weekend. What kind of thing can we see at the show? We've got a whole blend of general aviation. It's a true uh, representation of everything from a light sport or power trike all the way up to a corporate jet. You know, we've tried to blend in a mixture of a lifestyle audience. You know, anyone that flies also drives a car. Um, you know, we've got Mercedes here, Jaguar, Rolls-Royce. And also we're very lucky to have first-time exhibitors Princess Motorboats this year. I was wondering why there was a whacking great boat in amongst all these aircraft. That, that's why then, lifestyle. Lifestyle, yeah, we are very lucky to have them on board. It's um, on board, see what we did there. Yeah, exactly. So, how long has the Aero Expo been going for then, uh, Alex? It's been going for seven years now, and uh, only in, in 2011 did we move over to Cywell. So this is our second year now, and uh, looking strong for the future. And it's a great airfield, isn't it, Cywell? Fantastic. How many people are flying in? Do you know how many pilots are going to be coming in this weekend? I've been told uh, because obviously our registration uh, from the office stopped on Sunday prior to the show and the tower's been taking over but we will have somewhere between 800 and 850 aircraft over the weekend. Okay well we've come indoors uh, if a tent counts as indoors it's rather warm in here and we've caught up with uh, legendary I think is the right word legendary instructor Irv Lee. Hi Irv nice to meet you. Hi great to be here three good days of weather I think. 
It looks beautiful, doesn't it? Perfect for flying. Yeah, fantastic. I drove here. Place is full of pilots. Everyone's driven here today, but never mind. Um, we're stood right by the airspace and safety initiative stand because that's obviously a key push for the guys from the CAA, from Nats, and for yourself at the moment. That's right. Um, I got involved to start with through Fly on Track, of course, which is the uh, site that's set up to... Uh, really help pilots avoid infringements, giving them lots of information. Because, of course, nobody sets out to infringe, do they? No, not at all. And, uh, you know, everyone's human. And it's really just getting a, a lot of awareness into people's minds to actually realise that when I'm flying along, um, take me as an instructor. If, I, if a lesson is going really well, so if I'm with a good pupil, I'm so pleased I want to move on so quickly because there's no point in boring him. I can actually get distracted by, if you like, introducing the less, next lesson a bit early. It's times like that that the message has to get across that if you suddenly realise that you're being distracted, this is where things go wrong. And it applies to me as an instructor, it applies to a weekend hobby pilot, it applies to commercial pilots. The moment you get distracted, you, alarm bells have to ring, you don't want the holes in the cheese to line up where one thing leads to another leads to another and all of a sudden you're inside Heathrow airspace or wherever it might be. And the more people realise it's everything and it can happen to us all, as I was saying, through distractions or bad planning or uh, it, it doesn't matter, it could be illness, weather, it, it all contributes. But look down the pilot reports, look down the radar replays, look down the links on fly on track and generally the awareness is building where people are thinking I'm, we're going down an error chain here I'm going to end up with either an accident or an infringement I recognise an error chain let's stop it now It's a kind of bizarre combination of schadenfreude and there for the grace of God go I isn't it? I remember using that very word when the CA were asking me what I wanted to do with the site it was the, the, it's the schadenfreude of I want to watch someone else do it please and, uh, and that's what we've got. And it's great as a learning material. That's, you know, why fight it? Pe people love that to see that sort of thing. Now, infringements are at the front of everybody's mind at the moment. Of course, there's the uh, restricted airspace, 112. Everyone's thinking about that and trying to avoid any problems. That's right. And it's funny you should say that because one of the messages I'm trying to spread is that everyone's focusing on this restricted area, Romeo 112. Uh, because it's there in a big red area and of course people are having to flight plan, having to get acceptance codes, mode C squawks. It's very, very easy and I've done it myself to almost forget that it's much more than that. There's the extended CTAs, there's the new CTRs, there's the temporary airspace that's been put in place for business. And the whole point of the games, or one of the, sorry, not the whole point, but one of the points is that we will be getting more business from abroad in Britain. They're coming in in all sorts of transport. We need the extra controlled airspace. And if you focus on Romeo 112, which of course you have to if you're flying within it, it's to the back of your mind goes the fact that perhaps Farnborough have a CTR. Solent have extended the CTAs. Um, South End new controlled airspace, Manston. And if, if we focus totally on the restricted areas, it's, it's very, very easy. Like, I'm at Popham, I can't complain we're going to have a CTA above us at 3,500 feet. Anyone within Romeo 112 will say, well, lucky you. But if I get distracted on a particular day in, in July, I've got to really focus that when I come back into Popham, or when I'm doing general handling just away from it, then I've got a CTA that isn't normally there. And if I move down towards Chilbolton, there's even a corner of a CTA that comes down to two and a half thousand. 
And it really is just keeping myself alert and not letting error chains develop. Now the authorities, and in fact the authority, are trying to make us as pilots aware of the Olympic restrictions. There's, there's uh, the magazine articles, there's, uh, there's leaflets, there's even a, a half-baked podcast going around, I hear. Uh, but, uh, but what's the one tip you would give as Irv Lee, the one tip you would give to any pilot listening now to be careful for the Olympics' uh, duration? It really is just, just look around you. Um, we've got so many different ways of spreading the message because we're all individuals. It's not as if we're all military predestined to be military pilots through a certain selection process. We've all got different characters. We all fly different ways. We all think different ways. We all want to stay safe. If you realize that there's a, a flying colleague that perhaps hasn't quite got the whole message or perhaps even misunderstands part of it, um, it, it really is incumbent on everyone to actually look after each other for this period. It's, the main restrictions are only for what? Five or so, it's the main restrictions. You know, what, once a century? If we can't actually just get on with it and look after each other in that time, then it's a pretty poor day, isn't it, when you can't do that? Now, Tim, you're the MD of Technum UK. What's the interest like in the aircraft you've got here today? Hi, Mark. Uh, well, actually, quite, uh, quite good, really. You know, we have the benefit with the Technum aeroplanes of um, having Rotax engines, and uh, I'm sure most of your listeners will know that Rotax engines are great for fuel economy and uh, for being very light. So that allows us to have a twin-engine aeroplane, which burns less fuel than most single-engine aeroplanes, cheaper to maintain than most single-engine aeroplanes, great on insurance, fantastic short field performance. Now, Technum's an, an Italian manufacturer, if I'm correct. Is there a different philosophy for, for making aircraft in, in countries like that? <laughs> I think uh, the facetious answer would be uh, to say that the Italian government help manufacturers of anything in Italy, uh, rather more than probably they do in the UK or in the uh, USA. So there's a certain amount of um, uh, reason that uh, Technam, for instance, make uh, a new aeroplane design every two years um, rather than uh, rely on old old versions. So the R&D costs are, um, I can't say underwritten, but certainly helped by the uh, Italian economy. Now, one of the magazines I was reading recently was raving about one of your aircraft, the twin out there, the 2006T. Uh, what's so special about it? It's uh, made for grass, made for short fields. It's made to go at 135 to 150 knots. It burns only eight gallons of fuel an hour total for a twin-engine aeroplane, which is unbelievable. That's, that's actually, in the modern world, as you say, that makes the difference, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And also, bearing in mind that that's not necessarily avgas, you can put either avgas or mogas in, so you're saving the, the cost of the per literage and the benefit of a second engine. How do you sell an aircraft? How does it differ from selling, say, I don't know, a Mercedes or a BMW or another, another premium product? I'm very fortunate in that respect because I'm a pilot, have been for 45, uh, 42 years, uh, flown things from World War I airplanes up to the Concorde and hot air balloons and helicopters, and I'm not a salesman. I'm very fortunate that these airplanes sell themselves. Now, the obvious thing you've just said there to us, Tim, is that uh, you flew Concorde. How, when, where, why? <laughs> How? Well, you know, pretty mediocre, really, I suppose. But uh, I was uh, on the Concorde fleet for eight and a half years, initially as a co-pilot, and then I went off to uh, fly the 777, and they were short of a, um, a left-hand seat driver, so I went back on it as a skipper and um, came off the Concorde just before the uh, final demise and went on to the 777 to finish my career at British Airways. So you had, um, must have had uh, numerous tales of, uh, of Concorde activity. 
you know, all those lovely things like there I was, but nothing on the clock but the airspeed indicators uh, manufacturer's name. But uh, it was an aeroplane that was built uh, at the end of the 60s in design terms and flew uh, in the early 70s, as you probably know. And we did 27 years of supersonic passenger flying. Uh, and with the technology of the 70s flying in the 21st century, um, you find things wear out and go wrong. So the aeroplane often went wrong. And um, in nearly nine years of flying the aeroplane, I only did 13 sectors where nothing went wrong. So we were uh, always pretty happy to uh, go through our emergency checklist because they were forefront of our minds and we didn't have to think very carefully about them because we were in practice. Well, we've moved out of the baking hot sunshine now into a classic old aircraft. We're in the, uh, the Avro Anson, uh, owned and run by the Classic Aircraft Trust. And uh, one of the five trustees joins me now, uh, David Blackburn. Good afternoon. Hi there. Uh, this is a great old aircraft, this. It's a fine machine. Yes, it was the backbone of the RAF during the war and uh, after the war, uh, and used predominantly by the Air Transport Auxiliary uh, with a lady ferry pilots that used to get the aircraft out to the frontline squadrons. Um, it had a history as the original aeroplanes were used for coastal command, they did mine lane, they were an offensive aeroplane, would you believe? Uh, the earlier ones had a gun turret right above your head. There's the hole for it, there it is. The hole for it. And they were used after the war and predominantly in a communications role, radar and uh, radio navigation training. And I think the last one retired from the RAF in the, the 60s. This one was built at Leeds at Yeadon in the Avro factory, where they used to build the Lancasters as well. And obviously you keep this flying and, and the whole collection. How, how hard is that? Extremely difficult. We've got 13 aircraft in the, the Classic Aircraft Trust, uh, which was set up by the chairman of Air Atlantique, Mike Collett, in, in March of this year. The idea being is to preserve what we believe is a, a forgotten era of Britain's aviation heritage, i.e. aircraft from the late 40s, 50s and 60s, which, as you'll appreciate, was the dawn of the jet aircraft like, which is why we've got uh, vampires, meteors and latterly the bit newer than the jet provost in the collection. We reckon to keep the 13 aircraft that are in the actual trust, we need about 250 to 300,000 pounds a year. That's just for maintenance, repairs, fuel. Um, and also what we're really trying to do is to get more people to join the trust to pay minimum of pound a week, 50 pounds a year. We have a bronze, silver and gold membership where people that can find 50 pounds a month uh, get some extra privileges, which is that they can probably get a ride in one of our jets, the Meteor, Vampire or Jet Provost. That's not bad, is that's worth a membership alone. Um, and you're based at Coventry, aren't you? And people can come down and it's airbase, isn't it, you call it? It is, yes. The, the, the collection is based at airbase at Coventry Airport. And uh, we have two hangars there. Uh, it is very much a, a working museum, not a static museum. Uh, there are approximately 25 aeroplanes on display, of which 13 belong to the Trust, and the others are owned or operated by Air Atlantique. Uh, some are used for pleasure flying and they're on what we call as an air operator certificate and we as a charity can't operate commercially so the Dragon Rapides which are the fine old biplanes they do the pleasure flying we've got two of those operational another one which is in final stage of the major rebuild uh, we also have a de Havilland Dove that is used uh, we also have a Percival Prentice shortly we're going to get a Percival Proctor 
Um, and we have got a chipmunk for those people of a not too delicate nature who want to be turned upside down. I was my first flight in a little aircraft. An RAF cadets was in a chipmunk, and I went very green. Oh dear, never. I, I remember that, so I won't be repeating that. You're all right, thank you. Um, you've also got uh, the, you've got the diner there, haven't you? The the, the DC six that you've turned into a, a restaurant essentially. Yes, the uh, DC six diner is one of the aircraft, which was a freight aircraft that was used by Air Atlantic for cargo. Um, it has been put into what we call a static position now, where it's unlikely to ever fly again, unfortunately. But uh, it has got a completely new second lease of life as a, a diner. And we do have very high reports. I've eaten there. Um, it's not a, a greasy spoon. No offence to the greasy spoons of this country. We love a greasy spoon. Yeah. But it's very, very high quality. Um, and it's just like sitting in an airliner when... Do you remember when flying in an airliner used to be fun? And no, I'm only 18. No, no. Well, near the days <laughs> when you, you used to enjoy it. I've seen it. I know what you mean, yes. It's got a lovely little cocktail bar at the back. You could imagine yourself with Mallory Munro with her cigarette in a holder, uh, sipping a gin and tonic or whatever. And it's absolutely superb. Okay, well, we've found a friend of the podcast, Sebastian Pooley. Sebastian, nice to meet you. Nice to see you again, Mark. So how's the show going for you today? Yeah, it's been, the sun is shining, so it's a huge improvement on last year. Um, there's been a steady stream of people coming through the door on the first day, uh, so we're pleased with that. And uh, as I was driving in today, yes, I was driving in today, unfortunately not flying in, uh, there was a steady stream of aircraft coming through, so uh, that's always an encouraging sign. I think you got to drive, really. You wouldn't get all of this, all your merchandise here, in the back of a 172, would you? No, definitely not. Although people think we should go and visit flying schools in, a, in the back of a 172. And uh, no, I think a Hercules would probably do it. <laughs> I was going to say you need something like that, or maybe a 747 cargo version, because you've got an awful lot of stuff on display here. How is it going in the world of, in the world of retail when it comes to, uh, comes to aviation products at the moment? Well, I have to, we had a very good start to the year, and then April being incredibly wet uh, meant that uh, the sales were, uh, were sort of tough if you like. But, uh, but no, um, generally things are up uh, in 2012 uh, and we're very pleased. And aviation, although the aircraft may not move forward much, the uh, gadgetry does fly ahead at light speed. What's, what's brand new in terms of technology? It's all about the iPads at the moment. Um, people are creating apps for the iPad at a steady pace, and there's something coming out every single month, or a number of things coming out every single month. Uh, obviously, on the ANR side, on the headset side, um, Bose have released their A20, uh, Sennheiser have released their S1, uh, Biodynamic have got their HS800. They're all selling very well. Um, and uh, obviously, there's a steady uh, flow of GPS as well coming into the market. iPads, headphones, yada, 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 yada. How do the Biggles Bears do? <laughs> yes, yeah, so like this it's quite a mixed crowd so uh, so the Biggles Bears do very well and um, and we do get through quite a few of them over the course of the weekend. I am stood on the deck of a boat at the moment what who, who are you sir? Laurent Lebrun. Hello Laurent what can I ask you a question does this turn into an aircraft in any way shape or form? Not at all. There's no wings hidden away anywhere? No wings at all. No propeller anywhere? No propellers. You do know that this is this is an aeroplane show? Yes we do. What are you lost? We are actually. We are trying to dig a canal to head to the sea. If, uh, if I was in the market for a boat, I would buy this because this is a beautiful boat. It's a princess. What, 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 what actual model is this? This is a V45. Uh, it retails at £420,000 plus VAT. Uh, it's, some, uh, it's an entry-level boat in the princess range. So this is your budget boat? Yes, the budget <laughs> boat in a way, if you, if, you, if you say so. There's no compromise on luxury though, but it's a, a 45-foot boat uh, built in the UK in Plymouth. Well, as lovely as it is to, to meet you and talk to you, we're into aeroplanes, so I'm going to have to shake your hand and say goodbye, but uh, au revoir, Laurent, and good to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thanks.
Well, that's it for another month. Thanks for listening to this edition of Flaps Podcast. Remember, with the Olympics fast approaching, you can still check out our special CAA airspace podcast. It's at our site at flapspodcast.com. And if you ever want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. We're mail at flapspodcast.com. And you can find us also on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month. We're ready for departure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps.